When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. again and welcome to a million other choices as always i am your host kim the case i am bringing you today is going to have you asking why people gotta be such dicks it's incredibly tragic to me that the elderly are often preyed on as being vulnerable and for anyone that maybe thinks that these kinds of crimes aren't as tragic as a young person with their whole lives ahead of them, remember that, well, number one, they're going to be you one day if you're lucky, so be patient with them when they aren't moving as fast as you think they should. And two, anyone that has lived long enough to be into their 70s and 80s and beyond has lived through numerous presidencies, entire shifts in cultural thinking, I mean, for goodness sakes, their phones were attached to their walls and they had to look things up in books. They learned long division for crying out loud. They should be revered and respected and nobody has the right to decide that they have lived long enough. I will never be ready to lose my mom. I'm not ready for cancer to take her heart disease. And I'm certainly not ready for someone else and their greedy, evil little hands to take her. This is the murder of Reno Ray Johnson. Reno Johnson was born in Lindell, Alberta on January 8, 1932. 
That's like in the middle of the Great Depression and like six months before World War II started just putting that into perspective for you. He was born into a farming life and worked hard around the farm until leaving at 17 to work even harder in the forestry industry. He was all around a very industrious go-getter and taught himself carpentry and fixing odd things by taking stuff apart and then putting it back together. If you have sons, this probably sounds familiar. Ray met his match when he was 21, a beauty that shared his love of outdoors, camping, and perusing garage sales named Marion. Marianne had been a cook at the logging camp that he was working at, and they settled into a happy domestic life in Lavington, B.C., having six children. Marlene, Colleen, Barb, Patrick, Laurie, and Bonnie. In 1965, the family moved to Enderby, and they opened a work-related clothing store, like work gear, kind of like how Mark's um, used to be before they started selling Nike and Skechers. They didn't have a lot of money, but they all liked adventure. So in 1974, they sold their store and pioneered the van life, living in a trailer in California off their meager savings. Instagram wasn't a thing then, so they were doing it purely as a passion. To help fund this passion project, Ray would fix up furniture and then resell it. Finally, in 1980, at the age of 48, Ray decided to settle down as much as he could, and they moved to Calgary and into the Greenwood Village Mobile Home Park. Uh, Ray did work as a janitor at the Glenmore Christian Academy, and they opened another store called Raymar's selling refurbished tools and furniture. And in 1996, with the kids all grown and out of the house, Ray and Marion sold their small shop and set up a booth at the Hillhurst Sunnyside Flea Market, which for any of you either from here or not was the greatest place ever. Apparently it's still open on weekends, but has lost some of its flair and wonder from back in the 90s. Um, I'm sure I have a friend or two out there that will tell me if it's still open or not. Anyways, life was grand for Ray and Marion in their early retirement, but things started to run amok in 2000 when Ray was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, and only a few months later Marion was diagnosed with lung cancer. A very difficult year for the two of them. Ray managed to stave off his cancer with chemotherapy, but Marion's cancer spread to her liver and she died in 2001. Losing his wife of 48 years was a devastating blow for Ray, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, but he soldiered on, and each Saturday night he would load up his tools, trinkets, furniture uh, to sell, and slept in his truck outside of the flea market until they opened on Sunday mornings. The flea market really became his thing. He loved visiting with the customers and looking through the papers for furniture and tools to buy that he could fix up. Ray was a tinkerer his whole life, and it really gave him purpose. His granddaughter, Tracy, said, quote, he loved the flea market. He loved people. He had so many friends. Uh, Ray was described by neighbors and friends as one of the nicest guys that you could meet, and he talked often very proudly of his children and grandchildren and, of course, Marion. Ray spent as much time as he could with family. He was particularly close with his daughter, Bonnie, because she still lived in Calgary. Ray was the kind of guy that wasn't all about money. He liked a very simple life, and he was the type of guy who would give you the shirt off his back. Uh, but he did make one big splurge for himself, and that was a shiny new truck that he purchased in the winter of 2009. On the morning of Friday, January 30th, 2009, according to Crime Beat, Bonnie called Ray and suggested that they go to McDonald's for coffee and a muffin before she headed off to work. Ray and Bonnie often shared quick morning visits with each other. It gave Bonnie a chance to check in on him. And as was usual, Bonnie found Ray sitting at the table perusing the paper for garage sales. 
He planned on stopping back at home and then continuing on his day checking out some more garage sales. Ray had plans to eat out with Bonnie and her family later that evening, which was another of the Johnson family traditions. Before heading out, Bonnie phoned Ray and he didn't answer, so they decided to head over to his trailer to check on him, but his truck was gone and he wasn't home. And Bonnie thought that that was pretty odd. Friday night dinners out at the mall were a thing for them. Uh, so they were confused, but figured maybe he got tied up at a garage sale. But after dinner, they drove by again and continued to call and check on the house all the next day and into the next evening as well. Bonnie was starting to get pretty concerned. Ray was very much a creature of habit and always let Bonnie know what he was doing and where he was. Bonnie tried reaching out to the police to report him missing on the Saturday evening, but they said to wait 48 hours, which again is not a thing. We do not have to wait to report somebody missing and it, particularly somebody who's who's elderly I, I to me that just seems ridiculous to wait Bonnie had already checked the hospitals and talked to anyone that she could think of so she was just left to just sit and worry and think on Saturday morning in the neighborhood of Ramsey in a kind of secluded area near the train tracks a homeless man down on his luck came across what he thought was an absolute treasure an antique wooden box discarded in the snow near a dilapidated industrial metal garage so the man initially thinks this is amazing it's like a little tickle trunk if any of you remember mr dress up and opens the latch which was secured loosely with some wire but when he opened the lid he saw the folded body of a man and quickly shut the lid and ran to a nearby 7-eleven to call 911 only according to crime beat retired detective Patty McCollum, she said the man was turned away at the 7-Eleven and instead called the police from a restaurant. A rather hysterical man told, the, told them that the night before he had heard spinning tires and saw a newer model white pickup truck trying to navigate an icy hill near, near where he found the trunk. Nearby, investigators found a plastic bag with Ray's ID and some of his personal items in it. Bonnie was told to sit down for some news that she was going to receive uh, that her kindly and gentle father had been found beaten, battered, and discarded in a wooden box. The family and the police held a press conference a couple of days later asking for any information that could further their investigation. Investigators learned about Ray's pension for garage sales and responding to ads in the paper for tools and things, so they believed it might have something to do with an ad that he might have been checking out. Ray didn't run in any shady circles, so there certainly wasn't any more obvious reason for him to be targeted other than that he only dealt in cash and often had a lot of cash on him. Uh, but Ray probably would have given anyone in need the money, um, so there was no need to kill him for it. And so maybe it was his truck that they were after. According to Crime Beat's coverage, Ray had a friend named Mike Mooney that he went to a garage sale with around lunchtime that Friday. Mike said that Ray seemed a little bit more rushed than usual, like he had some place that he needed or wanted to be. And Mike remembered Ray mentioning, mentioning that he had seen an ad from Moving Sale, an everything-must-go kind of deal, promising appliances, DVDs, a uh, new bed set, and a treadmill. Uh, Ray thought that this was going to be a great find. A phone number had been listed in the ad, uh, and he had met them back earlier in December or January. Ray had bought a chess set from the husband and wife holding the sale. Mike also remembered Ray saying that just a couple of days before he was murdered that the same couple had called him telling him that they had more stuff for him to buy 
and Ray was concerned that someone else was going to get the stuff before he could get there, hence the rush to get there. And re the really sad thing is that Gray's grandson told Metro News, quote, if these guys would have said that they needed some money, I'm confident that he would have helped. He helped everybody out, end quote. So to track down the couple, investigators went to the flea market to talk to the people that Ray knew, if anyone knew or had a name for them. And their questions led them to an address for Jason and Tasha Hubler in the neighborhood of Bridgeland. Both Tasha and Jason were unemployed and having financial issues. Jason had some run-ins with the law for fraud and a couple of assaults and arson. He was also have known to have a bad temper. Tasha had a few run-ins of her own, piling up a record with possession of stolen property and fraud charges. And while poking around the property where the couple lived, they saw a little bit of blood in the snow by the garage. So they decided a search warrant would be a good thing. But by the time it took them to get the warrant, was time enough for the couple to disappear. It didn't help the investigation that a media source released photos of the house, giving them a clue that police were on to them. So with them out of town and not able to be found, police took the only option that they felt they had left, which was to continue to gather evidence from the house and plead with family members of the couple that they could find that they needed to turn themselves in. Fortunately, neither Tasha or Jason were the best of housekeepers, so despite their efforts to clean their place with bleach and whatnot, uh, they missed a few spots. Tasha isn't also the smartest person around. So she attended her court appearance for something else. I don't know what that was about, but police got wind of it and followed her home to her apartment and watched them get into a white truck. Well, who else had a white truck? Right, Ray. So they were nicely and cleanly arrested and brought into custody and charged with Ray's murder. They were brought back to the station to be questioned, hiding their faces and all the usual nonsense. A mumbling Jason kept his face in his hands through most of his interview and told detectives that Ray had slipped on some dog food on the stairs to the basement when he went down to look at some of the stuff that they had for sale. He said that those darn stairs were a death trap and very uneven. But Tasha told police that Jason told her to keep the lights off and had put sheets and stuff over the windows so that no one could see in. And he hit Ray when he came in the front door with a couple of hammock poles that he had taped together. And more than once. And once he was down on the ground, hit him some more for good measure. Tasha says that despite her protests, he made her move him so that he was laying flat, face up, and empty his pockets. She then was forced to use a taser on his head to check to see if he was still alive, and then the two of them folded him into the wooded box. The medical examiner's findings of multiple blunt force trauma backed up this story more than a fall down the stairs. And I'll be right back after these short messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So when the trial started in March 2011, both Tasha and Jason were tried together as they were charged with first-degree murder because of the forethought that had gone into Jason's evil little plan. The crust of the prosecution's case was that Ray had been targeted for his truck, which they had seen him drive up in in the first meeting. Jason wanted that truck pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, it was a really nice truck, but no truck is really worth killing for. They both knew that Ray would find the offer of tools and furniture would be enticing for him. Jason and Tasha's neighbor in Bridgeland, where they lived and where Ray was lured to his death, Peter Hughes, told the court that he had seen the wooden trunk that Ray had that Ray was found in at Jason and Tasha's house in their bedroom. Uh, he saw the Hublers driving around after the 30th with that white GMC truck of Ray's, uh, but that he had said that he bought it from a guy named Al. Uh, he even bragged and showed him some of its fancy features. That same week, Peter bought a taser from Jason for, for $100. Quote, I thought it would be cool at the time, uh, but he later smashed it when he learned of the homicide. Both of them offered apologies, Tasha sputtering and sobbing, and Tracy Johnson, Ray's grandson, said, quote, it's hard to think that we could accept those apologies now. Maybe over time, time does heal and perhaps we can accept their apology, but it's just so difficult. It's just so difficult, the pain and suffering that this has brought us, end quote. But Jason kept up his story, even when Tasha testified in her own defense saying that Jason was controlling. Now, for Tasha's part, her story sounded somewhat plausible. We've certainly heard this defense before. Um, I would never do something like that. He practically had a gun to my head. I was terrified, so I helped him. Uh, I wish I never met him, blah, 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 blah. Now, she went so far as to tell the jury that she had lost her children as a result of this abuse and that he sometimes used a BB gun on their dog. Uh, and her story matched with physical evidence. Her lawyer, Alan Face, said you should believe her how Ray Johnson met his end and why she went along with Jason's plan. Make it clear this was Jason's plan, not Tasha's, and he sprang it on her. She suffered years of abuse, mental and physical, and knew if she opposed him, he would threaten her life and put her family's members in danger. If she opposed Jason in any plans, it would be to her peril. Tasha Hubler, at the time, put yourself in her shoes. You'll ultimately find that she had no safe avenue of escape. She felt if she got away that he would come after her. But Jason's defense lawyer showed a few letters that she had written to Jason while he was in jail awaiting the trial. So this was actually a fun little thing for the prosecution because her letters were not filled with, yes, dear, no, dear, please don't hurt me. They were filled with little hearts and lovey-dovey stuff, including, quote, be strong, we will get through this mess, and I love you with all my heart and soul, that kind of blah, blah, blah. So this doesn't paint a picture of a terrified woman, including the words, I can't testify against you and you can't testify against me. I give you my word right now that I will never testify against you no matter the cost to me. Now, the reason that Jason's defense lawyer brought up the letters wasn't actually to throw her under the bus as a willing participant, although it certainly did that. Uh, he was just trying to show the jury that the, her story couldn't be believed because she wasn't a reliable witness, um, which totally doesn't make sense because if you want to paint her as a liar, 
why also paint her with a brush that says that, I, uh, you know, I love him. I'm going to do anything for him. Like if she loved him so much and what he said about the dog, um, the dog food was true. We'll just go with that. Also making Tasha look bad was the lunch and shopping spree that they went on right after the murder. All thanks to Ray's cash and credit cards. And the fact that they were at times when Tasha went along with Jason to forge checks, rob people, uh, and the time they, they sued Shaw Cable for injuries that never happened. In fact, one of those forged checks was deposited into her sister Patty's bank account when Patty was suffering from a brain tumor. The Crown Prosecutor Mike Ewenson said there was a plan by Jason Hubler but joined in and endorsed by Tasha to lure Ray Johnson to their home to kill him and take his truck. Don't be fooled into thinking this was just Jason. Jason made a plan and Tasha joined in the plan. He took her to see the truck at the flea market. Uh, they both covered the windows in their home. Tasha got the truck ready and put his body into it and both did the cleanup after he was killed and they both took part in disposing of it. So the jury quickly came back with first degree convictions for both of them. Of course, they appealed, uh, but the Alberta Court of Appeal said basically, nope, screw you. So they are currently serving their sentences and seniors everywhere are just a little wee bit safer without them on the streets. Now, speaking of violence against seniors, I was surprised to discover via Stats Canada that once you reach the age of 65, the scales start to tip and it's men that are more often the victims of violence. And of course, like other violent crimes, the perpetrators are more likely than not known to the victims. And a lot of time they are family members. Bonnie and her family were doing all the right things. They checked on Ray often and kept in pretty regular contact. Bonnie had tried telling him not to carry so much cash around with him, but Stats Canada reports that the rates of violence against seniors is dropping. And I thought, well, that can't be right. So I did a little digging into why Stats Canada was saying that, and I discovered that a survey study dedicated to the information of elder abuse was done by, by an eco-study, and this study disagreed with those findings of police-reported numbers. Their survey reported that 45% of seniors have been victims of some sort of abuse since they turned the age of 65. That's a big discrepancy between stats can that say the numbers is 300 per every 100,000 people, which is like not even 3%. So the General Society Survey, which are the authorities on Canadian victimization experienced by seniors, did their own digging. And what they found is kind of interesting. First, Stats Canada admits that not all areas of Canada are sampled. And interestingly, this seems to include people living in institutions like care homes and hospitals. But they also found out some interesting things about how data is collected. When asked about what kinds of family violence people are aware of, spousal and child abuse are mentioned way more often than elderly abuse. When someone is asked about abuse, people think women and children, not the elderly. Another survey asking frontline workers about their awareness and perceptions of elder abuse, they almost always answered with emotional and financial not violence. And lastly, they discovered that seniors were far less likely than younger Canadians to report any kind of abuse or violence, probably because we tend to treat them like children. Just saying. Now, it's a fact that seniors are less likely to be homicide victims than members of other age categories. Uh, women aged 15 to 24 still hold that title in that category. 
so it seems like there's a big gap in awareness around violent crimes in seniors. And I think a lot of us do our part with our parents of telling them not to overexert themselves and to remember their reading glasses. We check in on them, which is good. We should. Uh, but we also need to remind them about the importance of locking doors and being more mindful of their surroundings. A lot of seniors were very young in a time when doors weren't locked and no one talked about that creepy guy at the end of the block that always seemed to have kids around him. And an article in The Conversation by Hannah Bowes writes, Violence and abuse of older people is being missed by police forces, health professionals, and other key agencies because of ageist assumptions about older people being at low risk for violence. I have written previously about some of the problems the one in the one-size-fits-all elder abuse model. Uh, it distinguishes violence against older people from violence against other groups and suggests that the problem is one associated with the age of the victim. And this leads to different policy and practice responses. But as the evidence has shown, violence against older people isn't a problem caused by age. Instead, violence should be looked at across all age groups. This would allow research to examine both age and gender, as well as class, ethnicity, and other social characteristics to get a better understanding of the links between the types of violence people experience at different life stages. I find this all very strange because when you think about it, some seniors, maybe not the ones like Cher or Keith Richards, that will probably live forever, but some seniors are very vulnerable to violence. If they depend on someone to care for them, that's a vulnerability and probably a reason for them not to report it. If they are socially isolated and wanting connection, that's a vulnerability. And lastly, if they are of ill health and not able to defend themselves, that can make them very easy prey. So all this to say, call your mom, call your dad, make sure they are good, and maybe remind them of that the world has gotten a lot more evil since Little House on the Prairie went off the air, so be careful. People like Jason and Tasha are out there and looking for victims. Don't let your mom, dad, or grandparents be one of them. We all have a timestamp on us when we were born, and no mortal person gets the right to decide when someone has lived long enough. And we shouldn't think like that. If someone dies at 94 years of age, that's a loss. It's a loss of their stories, their life experience, and a heartfelt loss to those who knew them and loved them. And that was the murder of Ray Johnson. I'm going to be back again next week with another case. Thank you so much for listening. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.